Hi, I'm Stephen Cap Perry, host of In Good Faith. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We love our listeners. We love hearing from you, interacting, and we especially love to meet you in person. The In Good Faith production team will be at the upcoming Faith Matters Restore Gathering, October 13th and 14th at the Mountain America Exposition Center in Sandy, Utah. And we'd love the chance to connect with you in person. Go to faithmatters.org restore to learn more. And for a 20% discount on tickets, use the promo code BYU Radio. See you there. I seriously, I seriously have wanted to come to this place my whole life. It's actually kind of emotional to me to, to be here. It's just amazing. Welcome to our fifth episode in our special 10-episode series about Turkey as the crossroads of faith, both ancient and modern. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. We believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. The Hagia Sophia is the most famous building in all of Istanbul. It's a marvel of sixth century architecture and still a marvel today. Originally, it was a Christian cathedral then converted to a mosque when the Ottomans conquered Istanbul in the 15th century. In the 20th century, it was turned into a museum, and in 2020, converted back to a mosque by Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. We visited during Eid, when tourists and pilgrims lined up in a queue that looped around Sultan Ahmet Square. We stood in line for almost an hour, and then finally were admitted to the vestibule, and left our shoes along with the other visitors. And just as we entered the great inner hall, I saw the gorgeous imperial gate mosaic, which shows Christ on a throne. The Emperor Leo VI, the wise, is bowing to him, and above Christ's left shoulder is the Archangel Gabriel, and above his right, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I love as you walk in, you see the very famous mosaic. They've kept it uncovered today. You see Christ in his throne, and you see the emperor kneeling at his feet without a crown, showing that the church was above everything. And boy, you think of the history here. It's pretty amazing. For me as a Christian, this was the beginning place of having a monumental building that was built to honor God and to focus. I'm picturing someone coming from a village who's never seen anything more than two stories tall. And then you come in this place and you would feel like you had entered a new dimension. I mean, it was unimaginable. Surely this was like entering heaven, something just beyond anything you could imagine. And just how inspiring that must be. How awe-inspiring, but also spiritually. You just have to look up. It draws your eye upward to heaven. Today on In Good Faith, we explore the Byzantine Empire in order to understand how the Christian minority in the Roman Empire became the legal and cultural majority. And we'll learn how becoming the state religion changed Christianity itself. We'll also visit the Hagia Sophia for a thousand years, the preeminent basilica of the Christian faith, and talk about its transformation into an Ottoman mosque. To serve as our first historical guide this episode, I talk with Cecilia Peake, an associate professor of classics. She has a PhD in ancient history and Mediterranean archaeology from the University of California at Berkeley. I asked her how the Roman Empire converted to Christianity. That's a real surprise, considering that Christians had once been a persecuted minority in the region. 
So the third century AD in Roman history, you go through a 50-year period uh, from about 235 on where you have something like 18 different emperors. So it's lots of conflict, lots of stresses on the borders of the empire, lots of internal stresses within you know Roman leadership, lots of civil conflict. But in 312, famously, Constantine defeats Maxentius at a battle known as the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. But the claim is that Constantine had this vision the night before this battle, and this supposedly marks the moment of his conversion to Christianity. So Lactantius' account claims that he had a dream that he should put the sign of God on his shields as a sort of defense. Eusebius claims that he saw in the afternoon sky a a cross kind of above the sun, and then that night he had a dream interpreting this vision for him and was basically told, under this sign or by means of this sign, conquer, and that he should put it on all of his weaponry, and this should stand as a sign and be a source of defense to him against all of his enemies. And so supposedly this was... Eusebius says the Christ of God appeared to him in this dream and and told him what the meaning of this was. And this supposedly marks his conversion to Christianity. The battle went well or we wouldn't be hearing his story. Precisely, yes. He wins the battle at the Milvian Bridge, defeats Maxentius, and then he announces that he wants to found a city and that is on the site of a city that already existed there right at the Bosporus known as Byzantium and he renames it and inaugurates the sort of founding of that city in 330 AD, and that's Constantinople. Named after himself. Yes, meaning city of Constantine. Yes, exactly. So at what point did that supposed Christian conversion spread to other people, or, or was that enforced or encouraged in some way? Excellent question. Really, when we look carefully at the broader history, rather than the biased panegyric that we get from someone like Eusebius that I think we would call Constantine first and foremost a pragmatist when it came to religious matters. Mm. And so there are Christians, it's an increasingly large and prosperous group in many ways in his empire. In Um, spite of all the persecution. Yeah, uh, and and there were persecutions in the third century. and, And I'll just add, the third century besides being a time of sort of political chaos, is from the Christian perspective sometimes thought of as the century of persecutions. So there were actually state-sponsored, systematic, general persecution of Christians under three particular emperors in that century. So for Constantine, his own conversion, some doubt whether it was a real conversion at that juncture or whether he was just trying to weigh the interests of his Christian population and pagan population and how best to win the support of either group. This vision that supposedly happened in 312, there's a story of another vision he had in 310, two years earlier, while he was visiting a sanctuary of the god Apollo. And and there he supposedly sees a vision that makes him a devotee of the sun, S-U-N god, right? Mm. Soul Invictus, the inconquerable sun. So early in his career, at least, Constantine is a pragmatist. but But generally... Historians assume that he did undergo a real conversion, but the claims are that he wasn't baptized until his deathbed in 337. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to get as many sins in as possible before he <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wiped that the may slate well clean. Be. Yeah, but he um, he doesn't really enforce Christianity in the way that that some later emperors would, but he definitely supports it. Right. So under Constantine, bishops have access to him. Christians cease to be a kind of persecuted or marginalized group. They hold significant positions in Constantine's government, and they are explicitly protected, actually, by a very famous edict under Constantine known as the Edict of Milan in in 313. And if I may, I'll just quote a short passage from it. It does single Christians out, but it assures general freedom of belief to all citizens of the empire. It was proper that the Christians and all others should have liberty to follow that mode of religion which to each of them appeared best. Later it says, no man should be denied leave of attaching himself to the rights of the Christians or to whatever other religion his mind directed him. And then again, the indulgence which we have granted in matters of religion to the Christians is ample and unconditional, and perceive at the same time that the open and free exercise of their respective religions is granted to all others as well as to the Christians. So it's a very modern kind of document in some ways, right? Granting basically widespread freedom of conscience, freedom of religion to all citizens of the empire. We've seen how this changed the political system. How did this 
being now supported by the government change Christianity? Yeah, very interesting question. There are two aspects of this. One is the development of Christianity as kind of a belief system and and how it develops really into two kind of distinct Christian movements eventually. And the other issue is the experience between religions, right, and, and in the Byzantine Empire. So on the first point, Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity definitely start to divide. Yeah. First, I might say more generally that, you know, whereas Christians had sometimes been seen as kind of a subversive, potentially subversive group waiting for, hoping for, maybe sometimes feared to be even planning for the end of the world, once they enjoyed, you know, protection and eventually actual approval and support from a figure like Constantine, they develop a kind of more optimistic attitude about human destiny and their place in the world, right? In the Western part of the empire, Christian leaders, Christian bishops in the West pretty much all begin to acknowledge the authority of the Bishop of Rome, the man who comes to be known as the Pope. And the church in the West does sort of successfully distance itself from secular leadership in the West to, to a great extent at that point. And the bishops acknowledge him as kind of the chief authority. There's not really a similar kind of figure in Eastern Christianity. So in terms of the religious structure, there are four patriarchs eventually in what we call the Orthodox Church or right. Eastern Orthodoxy. There's the Patriarch of Constantinople, who's acknowledged supreme among the patriarchs, but not really in the absolute sense that the Pope is in the West. And you've got a patriarch of Antioch, a patriarch of Alexandria, a patriarch of Jerusalem, and those are the four patriarchs in what we now call the Byzantine Empire. But unlike the West, I think in many ways we would say that, that the Eastern Church is subordinate to the state. And some differences, obviously, in sort of doctrine and belief, Priests in the Eastern Orthodox tradition marry, and that was common and remained common uh, and was never done away with. This is still the case in Eastern Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodox, and so on. The veneration of icons is a very important distinction between the development of Western Christianity and the development of Eastern Christianity. The Eastern Orthodox tradition was really defined and very heavily influenced by a series of seven ecumenical councils famously beginning with the Council of Nicaea, which Constantine sponsored and supported in 325 AD. So there's there are those distinctions, right, in terms of how Christianity changes. It develops in different ways in the East from how it develops in the West. But besides that, I would say that there are these relationships between pagans and Christians, right, and a certain way of being in the third century that is completely turned on its head, post-Constantine over time, not immediately. Constantine, as I said, is, is first and foremost a pragmatist, and he sets out to protect Christians, but it's clear from that Edict of Milan that I quoted that he's, he's committed to protecting the free exercise of conscience of all citizens. And that starts to change in the East, actually. So whereas Christians were once persecuted, you actually get persecution of pagans in the Eastern Empire. Justinian, who is, was thought by the Christians to be the great defender of the Christian faith, is often seen as doing more to stamp out paganism than any other emperor. There's a law that's issued under Justinian that says, if you are not Christian, then bring yourself and your family and your household to be taught. And then when you've shown fruits of repentance, <laughs> that's not the exact phrase that he uses, then be baptized. First, he gets very strict with converts to Christianity who had lapsed. But then some of the legislation comprises all pagans, right? You, you basically will not have any chance to hold a government position. You risk confiscation of property. You potentially risk loss of life, even in certain situations, if you're not a Christian. What do you see happening in history? I tend to think of theocracy as overall a negative. It's a risky business, right? If you have someone who recognizes this free exercise of belief and, and conscience throughout, it can be a very positive thing, right? To have an, a, a ruler who is religiously committed. But whether it's, I mean, back to the third century, Decius and then Valerian and then Diocletian himself all issued orders against Christians. And this was probably not as widespread as is sometimes assumed, but it was, as I said, state-sponsored, systematic persecution of the general Christian population under those three emperors in the third century. 
And so to have that turn and now have Christians be protected, that they can retain their property, their churches are not going to be destroyed, their citizenship is not threatened, their opportunity to participate in government is secured. Those are wonderful things, right? But if it goes too far, and then you get back in a position where any ruler feels that the ruler has the right to impose a specific set of beliefs on the entire population of the empire, that is, let's, shall we say, problematic. And this ties back to how the ancient world viewed religion, doesn't it? One thing I think worth noting is in the ancient world, religion is kind of a mosaic, which is an appropriate term, of course, for (laughs) the Byzantine world. But it's this mix of many different practices, many different beliefs. And I think for the ancient world, to a great extent, ritual is as and arguably more important, right? The pre-Christian world, ritual is more important than faith. It's more about what you do to maintain the favor of the gods than about what you believe. Like the Latin term for this is pax deorum, the peace of the gods, performing appropriate rituals and behaving in certain ways that would maintain contractual relationship that you enjoy with the gods. As long as you don't step amiss in some way, we will continue to enjoy the favor of the gods. Not not just as individuals in our farms and homes, but as a state, as a successful state. And so religious practice, I think in the minds of Romans, is linked to the well-being of Rome. Mm. And when you end up with a Christian emperor and Christian emperors, for them, this basic underlying principle, right, that the favor of the gods and us doing what's needful to maintain the favor of the gods, it's just that now that favor is linked to the Christian god. So this area, especially around where Byzantium was and Constantinople, it's astounding. But those are achievements we still look at right now and say, how did they do it? And why does this make me feel what I feel? you see that this was a manifestation of deep and profound and abiding faith and wanting to express that faith and honor God and honor Christ in in sometimes very dramatic ways. Byzantine art and architecture are in many ways just a very specialized iteration of Byzantine culture. It's a combination and a kind of fusion, if you will, of Roman elements, Christian elements, Eastern elements, Right, But probably the most famous thing, right, in all of Istanbul is the Hagia Sophia, right? This this church of holy wisdom. And for them, it seems that holy wisdom was another way of articulating the idea of the word. And so it basically was a church. There had already been a church there, destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed. So it's under Justinian, whom I mentioned before, that the Hagia Sophia, as we know it today, was was rebuilt. And when it was rebuilt, he had a couple of architects involved, and there was a development of a a very specific and new kind of architectural innovation known as the pendentive. It was always about how do we disperse the weight, Mm. right, of the top of a building, whatever, whatever form that top is going to take. So in classical Greek architecture, you have these horizontal roof lines supported by columns, rows of columns. And then when you develop the arch, right, the Romans, the Greeks had already played around with it, but the Romans probably developed what we call the true arch. And then you have this dispersion of weight and you can do more with interior space, which the Romans absolutely did as evidenced by the Pantheon. But then the pendentives was this additional development. It's an inverted triangle, basically, that helps disperse the weight even more. So now you can have this dome which goes up, is a huge circle, has windows in it, and somehow it's not crushed under its own weight, right? So, yeah, I mean, great engineering feats, but also a work of just astonishing beauty and also faith. Lutfi guides me past the imperial gate and into the main hall of the Hagia Sophia. Once inside the nave, I step onto thick turquoise carpets, 13,000 square feet of it. The walls are lined with slabs of a dark gray marble designed to imitate moving water. These rich dark colors are in direct contrast to the golden heaven above. The central dome rises to just over 180 feet, supported by an arcade of dozens of arched windows. Two semi-domes and two arches support the central dome, 
and the ceiling is lined with tiles of glass, stone, terracotta, silver, and gold, all capturing the sunlight. Everyone in the building, including me, is looking up in awe. You remember we entered through the imperial gates, mm -hmm. so there was the uh, courtyards, and then we have the inner courtyards, then we have uh, the cubic place, and then Holy of the Holies at the east, or so the end. So it makes you think it's modeled after yes. Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem. Yes, exactly. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for too. bringing us. We have um, a place where the coronation uh, takes place of the emperor. I'd like to show you there as well, if you would in like the, to. In the building here? Yes. Yes, here. Let's do it. We'll, we'll go this way, I'll please. follow you. Thank you. He takes me to a cordoned off square called the Omphalion in the southeast quarter of the building. This square is made of 25 circles of varying sizes, each one of them made with a different marble, some green, some pink, some red or black or orange. And supposedly these are all the different marbles used in the Hagia Sophia. This is the place where four different corners of the world would come together. Mm. And that's why it was the most powerful place and the coronation ceremony was made right here. Was that conducted by a priest to, to crown the emperor? Yes. So, yes. so it's kind of a religious yes. element to that. Also, it is in the church, as you can see. Mm -hmm. And that tradition has gone all around the world for Christian rulers. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. So if you look at what we would call the, this Byzantine era, what do you admire about it? What did they get right? Or what did they do better than anyone else? The Byzantine culture, I, th I find it fascinating and rewarding and beautiful, partly because of how it is this amazing combination of things Roman, things Greek, and things Christian, mm. right? So they've got sort of Roman government, Roman politics, Roman citizenship, Roman traditions, Greek language, Greek culture, and then this new Christian overlay. Not to say that there were no issues, because there certainly are, but really some of, you know, some of the most beautiful concepts in Christian thought, I think, develop in Eastern Orthodoxy, some that we're not so comfortable with, but I think still speak to a real, serious, and devoted Christian faith among these people. For example, the veneration of icons that I mentioned mm -hmm. before. Western Christians do not believe in the veneration of icons, the Western Christian tradition, better stated. But this is an ongoing practice, even now, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I think when you learn about and read about the justification, the rationale behind that practice, it's a very beautiful concept. Now, icon is just Greek from the ancient Greek, akon, and it means image. Mm -hmm. And so an icon was an image, right, painted, mosaic, but usually a painted image, which was meant to kind of image eternity. And right. these these would be Mary and, and the saints. Yes, and, and Jesus and John the Baptist mm -hmm. and a variety of figures. Mm -hmm. And, and in venerating those images, right, which the Western tradition tends to see as idolatry, they, they understood that the ultimate manifestation, the ultimate image, shall we say, was the incarnation of Christ, where God became material and visible. And, and that is such a beautiful concept to me, right, mm -hmm. that, that God in becoming human, right, in, in becoming flesh, he became material and visible, and therefore, in their thinking, we would say, and therefore it is appropriate that through something material and visible, we receive insight, access, and some connection to eternity that we couldn't. I have one other quote from St. John of Damascus from the 7th century AD. He goes, I honor all matter and venerate it. Uh, through it, filled as it were with a divine power and grace, my salvation has come to me. 
Was the three times happy and blessed wood of the cross not matter? Was the sacred and holy mountain of Calvary not matter? What of the life-giving rock, the holy tomb, the source of our resurrection? Was it not matter? Is the holy book of the gospels not matter? Is the blessed table which gives us the bread of life not matter? Are the gold and silver out of which crosses and altar plate and chalices are made not matter? And before all these things, is not the body and blood of our Lord matter? Either stop venerating all these things or submit to the tradition of the church in the venerating of images, honoring God and his friends, and following in this the grace of the Holy Spirit. Do not despise matter, for it is not despicable. Nothing that God has made is. Only that which does not come from God is despicable, our own invention, the spontaneous decision to disregard the law of human nature, i.e. sin. And so that's at the heart of that. And and this idea that they think of themselves as not just imagining or thinking about Christ or the saints, but experiencing them in a face-to-face reality. And it's not a practice I would engage in, but it's a practice that I find deeply moving. A current priest of the Orthodox Church says, the world is not accident and caprice. It is deeply intentional and personal and conspiring towards our salvation. Mm. And that's how he describes his experience with the veneration of icons, which I think is, is very interesting. Cecilia Peake wasn't the only expert with an interest in the Hagia Sophia. In fact, we talked with two other scholars about the building. The first is history professor Christine Isomferharen. Christine holds a Ph.D. in Ottoman history from the University of Chicago and is author most recently of The Sultan's Fleet, Seafarers of the Ottoman Empire. We'll hear more from Christine in our episode about Ottomans in Turkey, but here's what she had to say about the basilica that became a mosque. So the Hagia Sophia, and this is the Turkish pronunciation of the building, was built by the Emperor Justinian to replace a church that was destroyed in riots against him. And it is an incredible building. It's still just amazing. And so it was built in the sixth century and has survived a number of earthquakes, which is amazing. And it was one of the most amazing churches of the Christian world until the Ottomans conquered Constantinople in 1453. And then the Sultan Mehmed II said, I'm going to turn this into a mosque, which he did, but he didn't. Which was better than the Persians tearing down all the churches. He converts it. He converts it. And this is what is so amazing is there are many of mosaics in the Hagia Sophia that were covered over, but they weren't destroyed. They were just covered over. Once the Ottomans do conquer Constantinople and it becomes Istanbul, they build mosques that look like Hagia Sophia. Mm -hmm. So domed buildings that look like some version of the Hagia Sophia. And so that is, is one way that they very much say, oh, isn't this a great example? We should build buildings that look like this. Mm. And so if you go to Istanbul, you'll see that the skyline has domes and then these pencil, they look like pencils, the minarets that the Ottomans build. And so the skyline is really spectacular. So when it was turned into a museum by Ataturk, they uncovered those mosaics. A couple of years ago, Erdogan decided to turn it back into a mosque again. This is a building that deserves to be open to all people. Now, I've been to mosques all the time in Turkey. I've never had a problem getting into mosques. But it's not the same kind of viewing as when it's a museum and you pay your entrance fee and then you walk all over the building as you see fit. And so it has some of the most beautiful depictions of Christ that I have ever seen in these Byzantine mosaics that, at least until recently, when it was a museum, you could easily walk through Mm. and see. So it has this incredible significance, both as a church and as a mosque, but that's why it ought to be a museum, because it, it belongs to the world, not to one particular religious group. 
Professor Isom Farharan isn't alone in her feelings about the fate of the Hagia Sophia. When Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan converted the museum into a mosque in 2020, many reacted with concern. Pope Francis said he was saddened. UNESCO released a statement saying, Hagia Sophia is an architectural masterpiece and a unique testimony to interactions between Europe and Asia over the centuries. Its status as a museum reflects the universal nature of its heritage and makes it a powerful symbol for dialogue. When we were in Istanbul, we found people generally very cautious about talking with us in connection to the building. In fact, the Greek Orthodox Church declined to talk with us at all because of the tensions that exist around the current use of the Hagia Sophia. That said, most Muslims in Turkey and around the world see no problem with converting a building that was once a mosque for over 500 years, renovated and preserved through multiple investments by the Ottoman leaders of the time, back into a mosque. For these people, 86 years as a museum seems a small blip when considering the history of the site. Walking through the Hagia Sophia today feels very different for us than it would have only a few years ago when it was a museum. We were confined to the nave and couldn't access the different galleries throughout the building. Most of the Christian mosaics were covered by cloths, except the one at the Imperial Gate and the one at the Southwest Exit. And all that carpet, its weave and cleaning process make sure to point every fiber toward Mecca. Notably, the carpet covers the marble floor, which was designed to be a sort of map for Christian worship. Different locations were marked with uniquely colored stones to support the Eastern Orthodox liturgy. But what stands out most to a visitor are the huge green and gold medallions that hang from the walls. These are called calligraphic roundels. They're made of wood, and they're inscribed with the names of Allah, Muhammad, and Muhammad's grandsons, as well as the first four caliphs of Islam. According to some sources, when Ataturk converted the mosque to a museum in the 1930s, the people in charge of the renovations meant to have those roundels removed, but they were too big to fit through the doors. So when Sultan Mehmet came with the Ottomans and they conquered Constantinople. The very first thing they did was come here to pray and decide that this needed to be made into a mosque. And you can see some of the medallions, this mingling of history with Christianity, with Islam, all mixed together in this place over the centuries. Is it the minbar? Is that, oh, what's the part that's towards Mecca? What's the well, name? That's, uh, we, call, uh, we call it uh, mihrab. Mihrab. Yes, it shows you us the direction to pray, which is always southeast. As you can see, the regular apse is facing the east, okay? It is because uh, the Savior is expected to come from the east. And after it was converted into a mosque, uh, the second apse was added, and as you can see, it is a little bit oriented to southeast, and that's uh, where Mecca is. Okay, so all these things, including the mihrab, second apse, the mimber, where the imam makes his Friday speeches, and the Islamic calligraphy, you see, were added after it was converted into a mosque. So whenever you're in a mosque, there'll be a niche like this that shows the worshipers which way to orient themselves for yes. prayer towards Mecca. Yes. It used to be uh, in the very beginning uh, of uh, Islam, it used to be towards uh, Jerusalem, um, which was uh, the uh, holy place. And then afterwards, it became Mecca. That was the direction to pray. I guess it's... Uh, more or less the same with you. To uh, your, your uh, churches are facing the east, mm -hmm. right? Yes, and, and that's also and, the and synagogues facing Jerusalem. Yes, synagogues always, as far as I know, they face Jerusalem, and when they are in Jerusalem, they always face the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. Well, the Hagia Sophia is the highest-profile basilica in Istanbul that's been converted to a mosque, it's not the only one. 
The Holy Savior in Korah has a similar history to the Hagia Sophia. Once a church, it was converted to a mosque when the Ottomans took Constantinople and then became a museum under Ataturk. Now it's the Korea Mosque, but Greek Orthodox churches do still exist in Istanbul, and we were able to visit the Hagia Triada in the neighborhood of Beolu on the European side of the city. Its name means Holy Trinity, and it was dedicated in 1880. A small community of about 150 practitioners still support the church. So we call the local Greeks in our language as Rum, R-U-M. And the name refers back to the Romans. Okay, the name comes from the Romans, Eastern Romans or Byzantines. Um, they, they are the descendants of people who lived in Constantinople before conquer of Constantinople by Ottoman Turks. Hagia Triana, I guess. Just like the Hagia Sophia, Hagia Triana. Yeah. That's so interesting how we think Roman Catholic, but if you're here and you're the Rome or the Roman that Ludwig was talking about, that can mean the Greek Orthodox. That would be interesting. Here you can also see that Ayatriada, Rum Orthodox Kilisesi, which means uh, the local Greek Orthodox uh, Church in our language. Kilisesi, like Iglesia. It's a tall stone building with two bell towers, a domed nave, and the straight lines and arched windows of the neo-Gothic style. From the street, it towers above us on a hill. We're allowed to take a small camera into the church with the understanding we won't make ourselves obvious to the other tourists and devotees. We climbed the walk to the wide front stairs and then entered through glass doors with simple golden crosses accenting each of them. My producer Heather and I follow Lutfi into the nave. As far as I know, uh, behind the curtain is like Holy of the Holies in the Orthodox belief. Mm. And they always reserve a seat okay. for the Patriarch. Mm. Inside the church, the dome soars high above us, decorated with an enormous image of Christ. The walls and arched ceilings along the second floor gallery are decorated with white stars across a deep blue background. At the south end of the church were a series of decorated panels of Christ, the baby Jesus with his mother, Christ in the temple, and Christ with the cross. These panels were ornamented with gold-covered scroll work, with the large gold-enameled star dominating. This is so beautiful right here with the sun rays coming mm -hmm. off of it. Yeah. It'd be nice to be here to service when they open it, then you can see the altar. Right. Like, that one feels so new to me. Not new, what I mean is um, it's so modern in so many ways yeah. compared to this. This is obviously gorgeous. Got a lot of history. Yeah. As we walked through the church, we admired the walls that were decorated with paintings of saints and prophets in vibrant, rich colors. I've been to a fair number of Greek churches, and they'll have this square or rectangular portraits on the wall or on the iconostasis, but to have these full paintings, these are beautiful. Yes. All along the wall. Wait, where are you reading now? Are you oh, the, well, the Greek. You can sort oh, of see, see like that. Solomon. <laughs> I was like, wow, Steve. I just remember their faces. <laughs> They're very familiar to me. <laughs> listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. To understand more the way in which the Hagia Sophia influenced Ottoman aesthetics, I invited archaeologist and professor Cynthia Finlayson into the studio. She's currently the director of the Ad-Dir Monument and Plateau Project in Petra, Jordan, and special consultant to the Holy Land Christian Ecumenical Foundation's museum in Bethlehem on the West Bank. 
Cynthia has a PhD in classical and ancient art history and archaeology with emphasis in the Eastern Mediterranean Basin from the University of Iowa. Cynthia starts by giving us the biography of Sinan the Great, who was inspired by the Hagia Sophia in his own architectural designs. Sinan the Great, he was the court architect both for Suleiman the Magnificent and Suleiman's father, Salim. And Sinan is probably the best, most well-known and most amazing architect in Islamic history. So he created, uh, he or his school that he taught, I think was about 355 buildings that he is associated with during the Ottoman period. He was a product of the Janissary system, which was a system in the Ottoman period, I think it was started by Murad I, who wanted to have a, a totally allegiant force to protect him and promote his interests. And so he didn't want to deal with some of the nobles and the powers that could conflict with that. And so he imposed a tax of boys on the Christian populations in the Ottoman period. And villages and other Christian entity cities were required to have certain promising young men, young boys conscripted into the Janissary system. And so that's not just the army, it could be... Could be yes, yes. There was, a huge, there was a university system that was set up for them. Mm-hmm. They were first sent to a Turkish farmer who taught them Turkish because they were not speaking Turkish mm. and kind of observed what the talents of the boys and then sifted them out. Okay, this one should go in the army. This one should be an engineer, an architect, and would go through the system. In fact, it was so successful that Muslims who were not in the Janissary system started to complain about the lack of education for their children in comparison to what the Janissary system did. But Sanan was conscripted probably in his early 20s, so he was much older than young men, were, young boys were taken, and became the, the incredible architect. He not only rebuilt all of Istanbul. Any particular buildings that stand out that, oh, my that goodness. we might notice yes. they still standing? Particularly in uh, Istanbul and Adirne. Mm-hmm. Sanan was in charge of not only the buildings, but the public work systems, the sewer systems. He renovated and studied Hagia Sophia, or Hagia Sophia. And it became his 30-year life's work to try to surpass that building. So the Sulaymaniyya, Kuleya, or complex, that was built for his master, Suleiman the Magnificent, is my favorite because it dominates the city, particularly when you come in from the seaside. It's up on the highest hillside. More a fortress or a palace? It is, a Kuleya is a, it's a mosque complex and among the Ottomans, they were very, very smart because they, they developed services within the mosque system that would maintain the mosque in perpetuity. So the Slumenea, for example, um, had a soup kitchen that served uh, the poor in the city, no matter what religious creed they were from or what mm. race. Uh, it had a madrasa or a school. Some kuleas had uh, hospitals or insane asylums. They, they also include usually the, the tomb, the terbe, terbe of the, the patron for the complex. So Suleiman the Magnificent's tomb is there. His Russian wife, Laxlena, is, is, her tomb is there. Sanan's tomb is there. And on the base of the mountain, supposedly his little apartment that was in the, in the side of the mountain was there. They often hosted shops below them that were rented out to support the whole complex. So it kept the tombs going, too, because what? everything is being maintained, so, servicing the public. A lot of the buildings in Istanbul, they are so unique or mm-hmm. so inspiring, mm-hmm. awe-inspiring, mm-hmm. that they're not just important to Turkish people, but they're famous around the world. They are. And I wonder yeah. if you talk about, you've mentioned a few of them already. Yes. Let me read a quote first, because I think it might help us understand where the the thinking, the paradigm is coming from for Islamic mm-hmm. buildings and Islamic art. This is from an author named Karen Armstrong, who I'd highly recommend. She's a former nun. Mm-hmm. She has really delved into the deep meanings of different religions in the world. And this is from her book on uh, the Prophet Muhammad, which has been widely accepted in the Islamic world. So let me just read it, because I think you'll identify with what she's saying. She says, to, to Muslims, the physical world is not fallen but is an epiphany, revealing an experience of the sublime which normal human language or modes of thought cannot contain. To see through this fragmentary world to the full power of the original being has always been a function of the imagination, of art, and of religion. The Quran would urge Muslims to make the imaginative and intellectual effort to look at the world around them in a symbolic way. 
And every building in Islamic architecture, as well as different art forms, are built to point the soul or the mind toward God. Sanan's accomplishment was to build buildings of such height that it, that it forces, when you walk in the building, it's not only a sense of peacefulness, but it's taking the dome that existed for a long time as an architectural structure to really represent the heavens and to push the soul upward. So that's kind of the, the whole function of Islamic architecture. What is it, can we even put our finger on exactly what it is that he or other people have done in history that help create a feeling of sacredness? You just talked about being forced to look up to mm -hmm. heaven. What else goes into that? Oh, my goodness. Um, Sanan really, and a lot of Muslim architects, revived what we call sacred math or sacred geometry, mm. which had been developed, not called that, but had been developed as a form to order the world uh, on the belief that the language of the universe is math. Everything is based on math. And that numbers and geometric shapes have sacred meaning. So Mesopotamia and Egypt kind of put all these underlying foundation ideas together, and then it was taken up by the Greeks and the Romans and went into the Christian church and then into Islam. And particularly in Islam, because in sacred buildings, in religious buildings, uh, you cannot have forms of humans or animals. You can have other art forms outside the mosque, but it was to divorce Islam from paganism that still existed when the Prophet Muhammad was bringing Islam into the world. So the challenge is, how do we How we do that, it? yes. How do we embellish it? How do, what, how do we do that? And mm -hmm. so geometry and math, again, became a very important aspect. So the buildings are built on proportions, just like Greek buildings mm -hmm. are, and why we feel so comfortable as humans in Greek buildings, because those are based on human proportions. So that's revived, particularly by the Islamic classic architects, and particularly by Sanan. So, Heather, we were thrilled to be able to walk into the building, period. Hagia Sophia, whether it's a basilica, yeah. a museum, or a mosque. I was a little nervous, actually. <laughs> I was a little nervous because we were coming in as a camera crew, and it felt, with all the tensions that surround it, it felt like, oh, you know, What's going to happen? Are people going to be upset by this? Are people are people going to be excited, right? Like, I, I didn't know what to expect when I was there. But the overall, I mean, the overall experience of the building, it's overwhelming in some ways. Yeah, the awe that you can imagine pilgrims from around the empire coming at any part of its history, whether Christian or, or Muslim, would be to see a building that was unimaginably grand and inspiring beyond anything you had ever seen. And ornate. And it's really interesting. We talk about the carpet. There's all of this turquoise carpet. And then there's this square for the Amphalium. It's like an island of marble in this grand, vast carpet. But imagining what that entire floor would have looked like decorated. It would just be this rich experience. So, yeah. And as Lutfi pointed out, that's actually the very spot where the emperors were crowned there in that building. Right. This 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 history of being ordained by God to be the ruler, right? So you can't just say, this was a religious building built by one particular religion, so it always should be that, because it's changed hands. But also, there is politics involved from the very beginning. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing when you have an empire— and yes, the Christians, the early Christians would have been thrilled not to be persecuted, fed to the lions, right. have to live underground in caves. Yeah. Now they are part of the whole system. Yeah. And yet what happens because of that? You know, Cecilia talked a little bit about how it changes a faith right. and, and the practice to become the majority. And I think... One of the things that I've had to school myself with is when I look at what people did a thousand years ago or 200 years ago or 50 years ago, I have to say to myself, what's a like experience for me? Mm. And so when I look at this idea of a state religion and empire, I think, well, how is being the dominant religious group 
How does that help me? And how does that actually hinder my faith? And what lessons can I learn? And I think as a person who's lived not as the majority and with the majority, there are really different experiences with that. And there are really good things about not being the majority religion. I think you have to be more intentional. That it's not like, oh, I can sort of relax into the general wash of what's happening because we're all doing this. Yeah. You have to really choose for yourself. And sometimes there might be even uncomfortable moments where you decide, I am committed to this in spite of what other inconvenience it might cause me. Right. One of the reasons we went to Holy Triada or the Holy Trinity Church was to be able to see a place with icons, the, right. the Greek Orthodox icons and the iconostasis, which is the big panel at the front where the icons are all placed of Mary and baby Jesus that separates the altar from where the general congregation is. So ornate. It's so beautiful. Anything that incorporates that type of art or that level of art in both buildings inspires because of excellence. People were that devoted to give that much time, that much skill, that much money to create a place of worship that would lift everybody. I mean, just like we said, we walked in and we just all looked straight up. Even those calligraphy rondels that you talked about, those are still really striking and beautiful. Yes. Uh, The color, the calligraphy, the gold that it's painted in, they're still incredibly striking, still incredibly beautiful, and a window into how within the Muslim faith, one decorates in order to inspire, right? Yes. So here is a building with political and religious and historical importance It's open to all of us of whatever faith. And if you're Muslim, you find inspiring calligraphy and and teachings there. If you're Christian, you see some of the mosaics that are incredibly meaningful. To me, one of my most meaningful moments was coming face to face with the one that's Christ as emperor, with the emperor of the time giving him the keys to the city and and saying, this is who's really in charge, that it's really faith higher than politics. Make sure to check out YouTube for videos on location at the Hagia Triada in Istanbul. And next week, we'll explore the Ottoman Empire and listen in on interviews with adherents of the Muslim faith tradition. Many thanks to Cecilia Peek, Christine Eisenferharen, and Cynthia Finlayson for speaking with us. And as always, thank you to Lutfi Beto for his guidance and expertise in country. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Emma Engebretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinich. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips, Joshua Fouts, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, be sure and leave a comment or a five-star review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon right here in Good Faith. <laughs>